All right. Hey, everybody. It is good to be here. But we got an issue, folk. We got an issue, and we got to solve it right now. As you can tell, this has not been a usual Sunday. I know it's Father's Day. Father's Day is a great day. But this isn't my message, but I got to take care of this business. If you notice in the lobby, it was very subdued, it was very quiet. People weren't even coming in as they normally come in to worship. Been very lethargic, very laid back. I can't have that. That's unacceptable. So I want you to just get up right now, and I don't care. I know you don't want to get up. I don't really care. Get up! And I want you to praise the Lord. Just say, yes, thank you, Lord. Give him a, give the house a praise to the Lord. Come on. That's better. That's who we are. Oh, none of this little polite stuff. Praise the Lord. Come on. All right, you can sit down now. Now we're ready to get going. Yeah, I was about ready to say that, but probably in the most negative way. Yeah, you know what I mean? Okay. This is our third, third in our series called Capacity. And I hope you've been here for all of it. You know, I've been a pastor for over 30 years. And there's, 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 it's always been a huge challenge for me to uh, uh, get people up to capacity. You know, get them moving, get them going, challenge them, and, and, and make sure that we're running on all cylinders as a church. And that means everybody's got to be participating. Everybody's got to be in the game so that we're all building up the kingdom of God together. You know, really to the point, you know, th this is the reality of this. How do I get your butts in gear? You know, how, how, how do I get your backside into the game of God's kingdom? It, it, it's a challenge. It's more than a challenge. You're never satisfied in getting it because anytime you see a great number of people sitting on the sidelines and just, you know, some people doing, you know, the work of the kingdom of God, you say, I got to do more. Something has to be done. How can I let a, light a fire under their tails? Some people in the game, many people are not. I mean, you know it. I know it. That's the way it is. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. How do you move the needle of capacity of a church so that it's pegging the other side and we're really, really making an impact for the kingdom of God? You see, really, the difference is right here. The difference is right here. But the answer to the question of how you do it, as always, is right there. And that's what we're going to take a look at today. That's what we're going to take a look at, okay? But while we do that, I want, you have to participate. I'm not going to have a lot of object lessons like I oftentimes do from time to time and that kind of stuff. Uh, I, the, real, the object lesson today is you. Because I want you to be thinking all the time, and we're going to do four stories from the, from the Word of God. I want, you to, I, I want you to put yourself in a story. Even more so, how does that apply to my life? If I were living through that situation, where would I be? How, how, do, how would I want myself to be, even more importantly? I know how I've, maybe I've acted all my life, but where would I really, in my greatest fantasy, where would I really want to be in this story? So, we're going to start out Exodus chapter 2. If you have your Bible, take it out, Exodus chapter 2. That's, it's going to be worthwhile for you to go there. Exodus chapter 2. You probably don't go through Exodus an awful lot. But here we are in Exodus. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to kind of give you the, the breakdown of the story. The scripture actually is going to be right up behind me. But if you have your Bible, you might want to write some things down uh, and, and that kind of deal. 
So here we have Exodus chapter 2. I'm going to start out right from the, right from the beginning. Though the, the, you know, this scripture is a little bit different. But you're going to follow along. So you, what you're going to see is, here you have Moses. And he's being born. He's being born to two people from the tribe of Levi. And at that time in Egypt, you know, it wasn't really legal to have a son because, if you're a Hebrew, because the king, the pharaoh, was going to kill you. I mean, you know the story. It's a long, long, long story. So what do they do? And, you know, the mom, and I'm just going to kind of make it really quick. You know, the mom takes, takes the baby, makes a, a, a papyrus uh, basket and fills it, you know, wraps it up with a tar and all that kind of stuff so it can float and that kind of stuff, and puts it into the reeds so the baby won't be harmed. But she knows that she puts it in the reeds. She's going to put it in this special spot because she's been watching. She's no dummy. She knows where the Pharaoh's daughter comes to bathe and comes with her whole entourage. So when she comes... She must have already known the heart of the Pharaoh's daughter. She comes, she places that baby right there where the Pharaoh's daughter comes. And certainly enough, they see the baby. And of course, the, the Pharaoh's daughter's heart is moved. And she wants that baby, and she knows it's a Hebrew, and it's been abandoned, and the baby's going to die, and she doesn't want that baby to die. And so she goes to one of the slave girls, go and get that baby. And she goes get, but she doesn't know, but God knows, of course. Who's that baby? Who's that girl? It's Moses, the little baby's older sister. So, so she runs over, she gets the basket, she runs the basket, she's probably saying, isn't this the cutest baby you've ever seen? It's just the most wonderful baby. Oh, look at that little baby. It's a great, 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 great little baby. And she's holding a little baby up to Pharaoh's daughter, and then, then she makes a suggestion, which you know the plan was already set in the family. The plan was already determined. She says, would you like, since you're not nursing, and the baby needs to be nursed, and there were no milkmen at the time, or formula people, they said, wouldn't you like me to go get one of the Hebrew ladies to go and, you know, the slaves, to go and nurse this? Oh, yes, that would be wonderful. Just, yeah, I think it would be wonderful, too. And who did she bring the baby to? The baby's mom. <laughs> Moses' mom. Oh, what a plan, what a plan. And you want to know the reality is God's about a plan for your life just like that. You don't really understand it, and he's put it all together, and it's the most wonderful way. And if you just release your heart and your mind to God, my goodness. What a plan. That was extra. It's not my message. So sorry, translators. At any rate, <clears throat> that's just the way we're going with this. It was all in a plan. Now, the, the thing is this. Moses' mom spent a considerable period of time with Moses. Not only nursing, but you see, we're supposed to fill in the blanks behind the, the, the lines here, in between the lines. We're supposed to understand, and we find out later in the story, that she was not only nursing this kid, she was indoctrinating this kid. She was speaking into his life, prophetic words of life, telling him who he was, where he came from, what tribe he was from, who he really, really was. He was going to be educated in the greatest schools of Egypt, the greatest nation of the time, to become like an Egyptian prince. But she was telling him, no, this is who you really are. Reality is the world has been telling you all kinds of stuff about who you are, but God tries to whisper in your ear who you really are. But I got something else to tell you. I'm just going to go in my own life just so. I'm going to tell you some things today from my own life. Maybe you know, maybe you don't know. When I was growing up, of course, my mother came from a very poor section. Just to let you know, she grew up in the South. She was adopted into a family who her adopted family, her father died when she was five years old. That was 1929, the Depression hit. You ever be a single parent with two, two daughters 
in these times, which are good times, and then go into the Depression. She had nowhere to go, nowhere to do, jobs. Women didn't have jobs at that particular time, so she had to get a job. So, of course, she had to move into the poorest quarter where the swamps were, next to the cemetery, where she was the only white person in an African-American community. She grew up, raised up by African-American women for the most part. Brought me there. I met all of her grandmothers, and I got more grandmothers and aunts and all that that don't look like me, I can tell you that, than you, you can shake a stick at. Long story short, that impacted her. She even remembered the time when she, her, her, her mother would bring her to the community square in the, the small town, and there would be a man hanging there. Of course, he was African-American. That impacted her, too. So as a baby, when she had me, she wouldn't just have a baby and nurse me and care for me. No, my mother and my father, they loved the city, and they used to go to New York City, they used to go to Boston an awful lot, and when we go to New York City and New York Boston, oh, I would see, you know, I don't know, uh, the uh, UN, we'd go to a show or something at like Radio City Music Hall, but we would spend an entire day in Harlem. My family, 1962, Harlem, if you knew Harlem. Harlem looked good today compared to 1962, let me tell you. 96, and we would spend an entire day there. And this is what she would say. She would say, Gary, look at that. Gary, look at this. And she would tell my brother, see that little, that little kid right there? And she would be pointing out the difficulties that they were having in life and how they had to live. And she would say, people shouldn't live that way, Gary. And then we'd go to Roxbury, which is like the Harlem of Boston. And we'd spend the same thing kind of thing. We'd go shopping. We'd do all of this kind of stuff. And then we'd go to Roxbury. And we'd spend the rest of that day. And she would say the same thing. You see that tenement? You see the way that a kid who lives? See how he's running in the street? People shouldn't have to live that way, Gary. And that was constantly in my head. No matter where we went, Baltimore, whether we would go to Atlanta, no matter where we went, it was always that. We always spent at least a day in the poorest of the communities. I don't remember cities by the great city lights. I remember them by the ghettos because that's where I was brought, with that constant message. Now let's move into Exodus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. Moses has got, received this indoctrination from his mother. He understands who he is. He's 40 years old now, been brought up as a prince, highly educated. And what does he see? He sees this overseer, really a slave driver, an overseer, an Egyptian, beating the crap out of this, this, this Hebrew, smacking him, and just blood going everywhere, busted nose, probably busted head, and nobody's going to do anything because he's the overseer. I don't know if you've ever seen any of that kind of a, a fight before. I remember my first fight. I got into all kinds of fights as a little kid, and you know, that was normal for us in our neighborhood. And we kind of enjoyed it, to be truthful about it. And, I mean, I love a good fight. But the reality is, it, it, I was nine years old. I remember I was at Fenway Park, believe it or not. I mean, blessed Fenway Park. I was at Fenway Park, and these two guys were standing in line, and I was standing in line for some tickets, and they just started wailing at each other. I, never, I was never that close to two men. They looked like giants at the time because I was only nine years old. And they would, I mean, the blood and the, I mean, they just wouldn't stop. And they, the cracks of the fist and the, and the, the broken stuff that was happening, there's a, it's just remarkable. And here this Egyptian is just beating and beating this Hebrew, probably going to beat him half to death. And Moses says, no, that is not the way it's supposed to be. Not my people. My mother told me these are my people, not you Egyptians. And he kills the Egyptian. Thinks he can hide it all. Buries him under the sand. This righteousness, this passion, 
drew up inside of him that he just couldn't stand it anymore. And he said, I got to do something about it. It might not have been the right thing, but he did something about it. Buried him in the sand. Now, the next day, you can see it's, it's the next verse following up. The next day, I think it's verse 13. He's out there again. He's just looking around, surveying. And what does he see? He sees two Hebrews. And this one Hebrew is beating the other Hebrew. And he said, what is wrong with you? We got these Egyptians on our back. They're beating the crap out of us every single day. They're killing our babies. They're starving us to death. They're working us like dogs. And you're beating each other up. And the other guy says, what business is it of yours, basically? I saw you kill that Egyptian. So you didn't do that to me like you did that to him? Just because you're some special Egyptian guy? We know you're Hebrew. So, of course, you know Moses has to take off. He goes off into the desert. And there he spends another 40 years. And then one day he's wandering through the desert. And what does he see? He sees a burning bush. It's not being consumed. He's seen a lot of bushes burn, I'm sure, in the desert. But this one's not being consumed. He says, oh, something's really weird here. And so he's attracted to it. And then he realizes that God's in the burning bush. And God speaks to him from the burning bush. And he says, take off your sandals, for this is holy ground. He says, whoa, I'm going to listen. This is Yahweh himself. This is the creator of the universe. And he is speaking to me. And he says, yes, I have heard. I have heard what's going on in Egypt. I have heard the cries of my people. I have heard that they're being beaten, that they're being persecuted, that they're being killed, they're being starved to death, they're being enslaved, and all the rest of it. And it moves my heart. God's moved by each and every one of our deals that we're going through. He says, it moves my heart. And he says, Moses, I'm choosing you because I'm going to do something. I'm going to free them. Moses is up there. I got to stammer. What am I going to do now? I'm just a shepherd guy. I, used to, I, I know I was. I, I, I was. I used to be, but now I'm a... I'm a it's you, because you have the same passion that I do. What breaks your heart, Moses, breaks my heart. And that's the kind of person that God's looking for. You can be seated anywhere in this building. doesn't really matter where. But God's looking for you. He's looking for you and he's looking for people who have the same kind of heart, the same kind of passion that he does. God wants to use your, your passion to accomplish great things for his kingdom. What is it? This is the question. What is it that you simply cannot stand in our society, in your life? What is it that really, really, there's a lot of things that tick us off. I got that. I mean, I just got a parking ticket the other day. That ticked me off. <laughs> but hey, come on. I deserved it. It's the way it goes. I mean, well, what is it that really, really, some injustice, something that's wrong, something that really, really ticks you off, something that is, is no matter when you see it, it's just horrible. Uh, uh, Pastor Bill Hybels, he, he had a message, and we even showed it here years and years and years ago. And he said, what is your holy discontent? What is it that really just, you're just discontented with? And, it, and you, no, it's wrong, it's wrong, it's wrong. Somebody, and you know how we always say it, somebody ought to do something about that. Well, guess what? God's chosen you. Well, who do you think put that discontent in your heart? Your mother? No. Maybe she helped. 
But who, who put that in your heart? Who used your father? Who used your mother? Who used the circumstances? Who grew you up? Who educated you in the way that you were? It was God. He shaped you. Again, just to kind of tell you a little bit more about me, I have a real heart for the working poor, for immigrants, because that's where my people came from. That's who I grew up to be. That's, that's, that's who I was. And I saw how they were treated. And it bothered me. And it bothers me to this day. Because people shouldn't have to live that way, Gary. And I got it. And I understand it. And out of that passion and out of that moved heart and out of that broken heart, out of that thing that just disturbs me and steams me up and gets me ready for a fight every time I look at it, came a homeless shelter here in the city of Elizabeth, over on Grand Street. There wasn't a home, there wasn't one there before. There is one there now. And right next to it, we got the money to build a family shelter because I knew it wasn't just the single people that needed a home, it was the families who needed a home as well. In addition to that, you even know in Christ Fellowship, I mean, our social services, the churches that you know, we were associated with, they didn't have a social service department, so to speak, or anybody there for somebody just to come off the street and say, hey, you know, I got this need, or can you help me out? Can you network with me? Do you have anything or anything like that kind of stuff? And praise God, you know, Jorge Olivo, you know, he started it up. He, he, he and I had our same kind of heart. He, he did it, and, and, and now, you know, Lydia does this exact same thing. Excellent job. Excellent job. Oh, how about, you know, uh, the other ministry that, you know, I can't stand to see that, you know, I, I, the homeless, what, why do they have to be unclean? Why do, they, why do they have to have not clean clothes? And here we are in the nation of the, of the United States, and we have the capacities of a church to make that happen. So, of course, I said, hey, look, let, let's do this dignity thing. Let's give them showers. Let's give them a little some coffee. Let's treat them like human beings, like, you know, they're just our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's give them some new clothes as a church. Why can't we do that kind of stuff? And it, and it happens. And it happened. Uh, how about, I heard about something some time ago, uh, just about five, six, eight, eight years ago, I don't know what it was, and it was uh, uh, how the immigrants were coming to the United States and they were coming into the city of Elizabeth and the same people, like the Hebrews and the Hebrews, no, 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 the same people were ripping them off, charging them $5,000, these paralegals, and they wouldn't do anything for them. They'd come back six months later, and none of their papers were filed. Nothing was done. And they'd say, oh, give me another $500. They were just ripping them off. And I said, people shouldn't have to live this way. And I had a brother who had a like mind who was doing something with the uh, uh, same kind of thing, Holistic Living Project, and his name is our elder, Kirk Nelson. And I said, let's get this thing together. Let's offer some free stuff. And we did, and it's been operating. Kirk and his staff are just doing a fantastic job for immigrants and people who are coming in here. But it all started with that holy discontent. That This bugs me. People shouldn't have to live that way. What is it that bugs you? What is it that really disturbs you? How about shepherds? I got this idea, you know, I know about the homeless, and I know that they're territorial, and they can't go from their territory to the next territory, although it gets beat up by the other homeless guys and that kind of stuff. So we say, hey, look, duh, why don't we, instead of just having a feeding program, why don't we bring the food to them? Amen. Pete and Eva and the whole crew, June, and all the rest of you guys who do that every single month, fantastic job. But it started 
with that, with that, that, that just passion in, in my soul. So what is, the, what is it, what are you so passionate about that, that, that you, you just can't stand it? Is it women? Something to deal with women? Something to deal with abortion? Children? Homelessness? The working poor? Sex trafficking? Education? What is it? What is it in life that really gets you teed off? Every single time you see it. Here's another story. First Samuel. You might know this story. First Samuel chapter 17. I get to go there myself. First Samuel 17. Is that in the New Testament or the Old Testament? Old Testament? Oh, geez. Thank you very much. Uh, anyway, just, just trying to keep you alert. You know, I, I don't really know. My Bible isn't divided in those it, many sections. That just means it. I get confused. Anyway, uh, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17, we're going to begin with around with verse 8. But you know the story. It says, uh, anybody heard of David and... Ooh, you get, you, you, they've heard the story. You guys heard the story? Yeah. Oh, wow. So, at any rate, this story, you know, David and Goliath, it's one of the easiest in, stories in the Bible to convey to somebody. It's, and, you know, this, this guy, David, this little shepherd boy, you know, and... Uh, his brothers are out to war. They're against the Philistines. And the Philistines have this big giant of a guy, nine foot tall. And he comes out there for 40 days straight, every single day. He coming out every he's got his big staff. He's got his arm. He's got his armor bearer, his helmet, all the rest of the kind of stuff. And he's just calling down the Israelis. And he's just saying, you have a God. Your God doesn't make people like me. Your God is nothing. Israel, you, get, you aren't men. You go, please. Please, all you army, bring your husbands, fight me, you know, you know, stop leaving, you know, all the ladies coming to fight me. And he's going on and on and on, just ridiculing, using the most ugly language about God, about the temple, everything you could possibly imagine. David, as a little boy, you know, really, a teenager, I guess, walks out there to give some food to his brother that his father had given him, gives some to the guards, the, the, the higher staff in the army, then goes to his brother, and he overhears, this Goliath comes out, and he's saying the same thing over and over again. Your God stinks. He's no good. He's not a wimp. He's, no, he's nothing compared to our gods. And he's, and he's, he's, he's getting burned up. I can't stand this anymore. This is my holy God. My God has been with me since I've been a little kid. He speaks to me. He's done things for me. He's provided for me. He's protected me. He's given me strength. I am who I am because of that kid, that my God. And they are saying that. No way. So he says, okay, Saul, King Saul, let me at him. And King Saul said, you're a shepherd boy. You're dressed in sheep clothes, kid. I mean, come on, give me a break. Let me have you put on your armor. No, that doesn't really fix us. Just let me at him. So he just gets his five stones. You know, there was only one giant, you know, but he had four brothers. You got that. So it's because, you know, family sticks together. So, you know, he gets, he gets it ready. He just gets one stone, and he just goes running at this giant, and he just heaves it at him. And it just, sick God just makes that, that rock sore. That rock goes right to his forehead and crushes his forehead, knocks the giant out, doesn't kill him, knocks him out, and just David comes with his sword and just gets a uh, glass sword. And he just whoa, stabs him and cuts off his head and says, Aha, this is what my God do. This is what my God do, what your God do. And he just holds it up there. And, of course, they get all frightened, they get scared, and they get delivered and that kind of stuff. But it all started, the rest of the army was scared stiff. Every time that Goliath came out, you can read in the scripture, they went, oh, no, oh, no, not me, guy, not me, Jack, you know, another guy. Forty days, they wouldn't come out. And this little kid, because he had such a passion, he had such a holy discontent, he says, I don't, this is all I got, a sling and a rock, a sling and a rock. I'm using it, I'm going after him, and he killed him. What is it that really ticks you off? 
What, but more importantly, from this story, what giant keeps you from doing what God has told you to do? What giant is stopping you from doing something about that holy discontent that you have in your heart? Folks, you got to do something about that giant. He's going to stay there. He's going to ridicule you. He's going to demean you and make your faith in your God seem like nothing unless you do something about it. Unless you do something about it. What has stopped your passion from making something happen? It's time to slay the giant. To do that, for, for one thing, you need to feed your passion. What do I mean by that? Don't forget it. So many of us just, yeah, it ticked me off, yeah, yeah. But then we go do something else, we get distracted, and we just try and forget it, and just kind of put it away, and say, okay, okay, I just got to live with that. No, 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 feed it. That's why my mother and my father brought me to the ghetto every single time we went to a city. Don't forget this, kid. I told you once, but I'm going to tell you a dozen more times. I'm going to tell you in a different way. I'm going to feed that passion that's growing inside of your heart. Feed your passion. Don't ignore it. Don't make excuses for it. Don't let say someone else has got to do something about it. I don't know what to do. Who am I? I'm only, I'm only a stutterer. I can't really say anything. What, how can I go to Pharaoh? None of that is worthy of an excuse. Get up and do something about it. Do something about that passion that God has placed in your heart. Third story. We're going to have four. Third story. Real quick one. Nehemiah. You know Nehemiah. Uh, <clears throat> Nehemiah was a cupbearer, really high up in the echelons of uh, not the kingdom of Israel, of course, a foreign kingdom, because the, all of Israel had been taken away in Babylon and had been, in, in essence, well, some enslaved, some not. But they had been taken away into captivity. They could not return to their homeland. Years go by. And uh, he sends out one of his brothers and some of his servants and all that kind of stuff, and they come back. And he says to him, how's things going with those people who were able to escape the captivity back in the homeland? How's the temple of God? And they go, oh, things are horrible. They're being enslaved. They're being ridiculed. God is being ridiculed by all the neighboring tribes. They're saying, see, you really never had a God. The Babylonian God is far greater than your God. And he says, something's going on in his heart. He says, wait a minute, wait a minute, this can't be, this can't be. And he said, what about the temple, what about the temple? He says, the walls have been destroyed and the temple is down. And he went, oh, his heart was broken. He, it says, if, if you want to read Nehemiah chapter 1, he goes into this prayer where his, his heart just pours out. He is just so broken, so hurt about what is going on. He says, this can't be, this cannot be, you cannot do this to my holy God. Not to the city, not to the temple. This is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. So he plots this plan, he says, God, he says, verse 11. He says, God, he says, he says, give me favor in front of the king. Because he knew if he just went in front of the king, he would most likely be either put into prison or die. He says, but give me favor, he says, because I'm going to ask the big ask. I'm nobody, I don't have anything. I don't have any materials. Really, I'm a slave, but I'm a cupbearer to the king. At least I have access. I'm going to use that access, what I've got. So he went into the king, and he says, King, this is what's happening, and my heart is such that I have got to go rebuild the temple. I have got to go rebuild the walls. I've got to go help that remnant, that remnant people that is there. And the king says, it's yours. Everything that you need, all the materials, carte blanche, don't have to pay for a thing. I'm giving it all to you. 
Not only that, I'm going to have my army escort you the three to 400 miles all the way so no one's ever going to bother you. And they're going to stay there so those local tribes, they can't do anything against you. Because our God provides those who have a heart that is broken for the things that his are broken for and do something about it. Do something about it. What is your passion? What is it that breaks your heart? What is it you can't stand? See, this is how God gets things done through people like you and through me. He first puts something inside our heart that it just drives us crazy. Ordinary folks, fueled by a burning passion move with a moving faith in God. These aren't just Bible stories. No, 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 no. It's in our own history. This happens all over the world. Thomas Paine, I just picked out one of the founding fathers of our country. He wrote all kinds of articles against the British. They, they had a note to hang him. They wanted to kill him. He said, these are the times that try men's souls. Every generation has things that try men's souls, that ticks them off, that gets them upset, injustices that just shouldn't be. And he was one of the founding fathers. You and I live in freedom because of guys like him. William and Catherine Booth, close to my heart, and I understand, founders of the Salvation Army. They were great Methodist preachers. It was told that he would save 2,000 people a day. He was Billy Graham before Billy Graham was Billy Graham. Anointed by God. But then he spent one night at Miles End Waste in London, which is the ghetto of ghettos in London, and he says, I am not going to go out there and preach anymore. I am going to be with these people, and I'm going to win them to the Lord, and I'm going to make a difference to the poorest of the poor. He called them the submerged tent. He said, because it was a burning passion. He says, people shouldn't have to live this way and without Jesus Christ. Three million people are today, in 186 countries, are today salvationists because of that burning passion. Ansel Adams, you probably don't know him, but you would not have a Yellowstone National Park, you would not have a Yosemite, you would not have a Glacier National Park, and many other national parks, because this guy was a conservationist, that it just bothered him that the natural resources of our country would be absolutely exploited and destroyed so no one could use them. He said, i got to do something about this. i got to save God's great creation." And to me, one of the greatest heroes, at least of my time, and, and my, one of my greatest heroes, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. He couldn't stand the fact that black people had to go to the back of the bus. I grew up in that time when we would go to a restaurant, whites only, colors. Go to a fountain, colored fountain, white fountain. I don't mean to use any un, you know, uh, comfortable terms, but that's exactly what it said. And I grew up in that. And I understood it. And it just ticked him off that his kids had no opportunity. Why? Just because of the color of their skin? Because they have a little bit more of, of one particular thing in their skin than I do? This is absolutely ridiculous. Can't stand it. He knew it would probably cost him his life, and it did cost him his life. But he had this burning passion, and God used this pastor of a small Baptist church in Atlanta. And look what happened to our nation. It finally started to live up to one of the great ideals that we have in this country. Because of one man's burning passion, one man's holy discontent, and he did something about it. They had a burning passion in their soul and did something to advance God's kingdom. The question is only this. This is the only question. What about you? 
You, what are you going to do about that thing God's put in your heart, that passion? Now, I'm going to give you a little twist, a little different twist on this. Acts chapter 9, you might know the story, you might not. In the first six verses, we see that Stephen's been martyred. They're starting to persecute Christians. Paul was one of the main, he was, his name was Saul. Saul was persecuting the Christians as well. He gets this idea. He's so passionate. He's saying, oh, no, 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 no. These guys, we're not going to have some cult out there doing this stuff. I don't know about this Jesus. I don't care about this Jesus. We're going to squash this kind of thing. So he gets papers from the uh, top dogs, you know, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he says, I'm going to go all the way to Damascus, and I'm going to bring these guys to jail, and I'm going to beat them. We're going to teach them a thing or two. And, of course, on his way, God stops him. Here's a man of great passion. He wanted to do the right thing. He was just doing it the wrong thing. He had the passion, but he was doing it in the wrong way. And God stops him, blinds him, and says, no, 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 Paul. Stop persecuting me. I'm going to get you on the right track. And that track is, I am going to make you one of the greatest apostles ever. And because of him, because he was blind, because he received Jesus Christ, we are all, for the most part, here Christians. Because he was the apostle to the Gentiles. He had a burning passion. Maybe, you, maybe you've always had a passion for something. Maybe you've put it into politics. I've done that. Maybe you've put it into a civil organization. I've done that. Maybe you've put it into your children or something like that. I've done that. But God has a place for it in his kingdom. Maybe you're a passionate person already. And you need to just get your passions lined up with God's heart. The one who put that passion in your heart to begin with. So if you're a passionate person, you've been saying, this isn't about me. I'm already fired up. I'm already doing all kinds of stuff. But are you doing the things so that your heart and God's heart are all lined up in the right way? Again, my own life as a successful consultant, consultant for 10 years, success is good. Money's good. I'm not saying it's not. It has its perks. But God put a discontent in my heart and fired it up in a new way, in a different way. Instead of taking profitable, unprofitable businesses and making them profitable again and making all kinds of money for the owners, and not a few bucks for me too, that was pretty cool too, but instead of doing that, I was in my church, and the church that I grew up in, when I was a little kid, we had two services on Easter because there wasn't enough room. Both of them packed, standing room only, both of them. That was when I was six years old, seven years old. By the time I was 20 years old, 50 people. It had died. Spirit had gone, really. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. God just put this idea and this passion in my heart. He says, this church is going to die. It's going to go. It's gonna, it, uh, we're going to fold it. We're going to close its doors. And I said, wait a minute. If I can do this for a business, I certainly can do this for a, a, a church. I wasn't even born again at the time. I was just like a Christian. But I knew that something was wrong and I could do this. Something, something had to be done. And through that experience, I got saved. Praise God. I think that was the best thing that ever happened. Really for me. I don't know about for anybody else. So even if you're a nominal Christian and you say, oh, I don't know if I could ever get really into the house of God, into what the God is. Let me tell you, God has a great adventure for you. God has something wonderful that you can do. You see, what wrecked the heart of God wrecked me. In so many ways. And I think it does the same thing for you. And the rest is an incredible journey. An adventure. And it, this, this journey, it still fires me up. I can't quit. I still want to take churches that are screwed up and unhealthy. And make them healthy. And even healthy churches and make them healthier. 
I still have a passion for the working poor. I can't stop this stuff. I see it every single day. What, what is yours? What is it you can't stand? I want you to identify it right now. What is that one thing? I know it's ten things. No. What is that one thing? Identify it. Is it injustice of some kind or another? Is it racism? Is it abused kids? Corruption in our government, in churches, in the schools, I don't know, corruption anywhere. Dying churches, is that what like, you know, just really wrecks your heart? Broken marriages, is that what's it? What is it? I used to take uh, the staff, when I was a senior pastor, I used to take the staff to different uh, coffee houses. And they say, oh, wow, this is really cool, a different coffee house, you know. We'd have coffee and we'd have a little dessert and that during our staff meeting. But really, it was simply, and I told them, it was just to open their eyes. I wanted them to see the kind of people that they're supposed to be serving. Because we don't serve. You know, if, if all we stop is serve here in the four walls, boy, we missed the point. We're supposed to be serving everybody out there. And unless we get out there and we see what's going on and we see the things that just shouldn't be that way, we're never going to be moved by the passion and the heart of God to do something about it. And our ministries are not going to go in the right direction. So what wrecks you? What I'm asking you to do is just embrace it. Get to it. Every single day, once a week, once a month, don't run away from it. Because it wrecks God's heart too. If you want to get close to God, get close to his heart. He wants you to sign up. He wants you to be a part of it. What you're doing. Step out in faith. Regardless of the giants that you see and the difficulties and the impossibilities, it doesn't matter. He'll give you a sling and a stone. He's probably already given it to you. It's going to motivate you for a lifetime. Set you on an adventure that you're going to be thrilled to be a part of. Now, again, many things are going to touch your heart during your lifetime. But what is that one passion that just isn't going to go away? I, I, what I want you to do is, I want you to dream about it. I want you to dream about how could you accomplish getting something done in this regard. Thank you, Matthew. I'm asking you to do something. Thanks. Expose yourself. Expose yourself to that passion, to that holy discontent, whatever you want to call it. And I want you to expose yourself often. Do it deliberately. Not when it just happens. Do it deliberately. Feed the fire. Feed the anger. Feed the injustice that's, that you know is burning inside you. Don't bury it. Imagine yourself doing something in the kingdom of God to make a difference in our world. Plan it out. Step out in faith. Fuel by your, fa your passion. What would happen... I mean, what do we got here? I don't know. 200 people, something like that. Two something. I, I don't know what you got here. It doesn't really matter, does it? If it was even 50. Imagine if each and every single one of us, fueled by our passion, did something about what really wrecks God's heart, knowing that God is behind it. God's put it there. God's going to do something with us. One final example from my own life. We had gone to Dighton, uh, to the Dominican Republic, many times, and planning things and doing evangelism campaigns and singing songs and praying over people and seeing people delivered, helping other churches. It was wonderful. It was beautiful. But I was walking with Pastor Raul Burgos' uh, mother-in-law, Kareem's mom. It was around 1 o'clock in the morning. And, uh, you know, there's still a lot of life there. It was in the Plaza de Colón, which is kind of like in the colonial section. And uh, we were by a restaurant, and there was young people, and they were partying and stuff. She said, let's go a walk. She says, I know you love history. So we went to uh, 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 Cologne's castle and that kind of stuff, 
you know, mansion, whatever you want to call it, from years ago. It's preserved. And we're just walking along, and I see these kids. Now, these kids, you know, I've been in the DR. They see, you know, blue eyes, white boy, American, jeans. Give me a dollar. Give me a dollar. I've been giving me a dollar all day long. I'm tired. Of, give me, it's 1 o'clock in the morning. I give me a lot of dollars. And I didn't, I, you know, and so I just, and, and so she, they asked us for some money, and there was just three kids, and uh, they're all disheveled, just kind of a mess, and just that kind of stuff. And she told them in Spanish, you know, take a hike. And so uh, we kept walking, but something, God just moved in my heart. And she says, you know who those kids are? And I said, no, who are those kids? She says, those are street kids. They probably won't live beyond 15, 18 years old. I was wrecked. I said, come on, we got to go. We gotta. She says, what, the house, of, uh, the house of Cologne is there? I said, yeah, right. It's been there for 400 years. Like, it's going to go anywhere. So I said, we got to go find those kids. So I went to try and find those kids. Well, they're gone, and they had scattered. That bought, you know, I would think, well, that would be the end of it. It wasn't the end of it. I came back to the United States. It still bothered me. I would have given them my whole wallet for crying out loud. I would make these kids the richest they've ever been in their life. I didn't care. And I had all the church's money, so I was ready to give. So no, I said, <laughs> I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. <laughs> that, that'll, that'll get, this is on television too, yeah, right, I guess it's streamed out there, ay, 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 Gary, you're in trouble, okay, so, at any rate, embezzling, a pastor embezzles fun, <laughs> what, what other kind of thing's going to go on, so anyway, all I'm just trying to say is this, it really bothered me, weeks later, it still bothered me, so I went to Pastor Raul and said, we got to do something about this, do you realize that there's a, there's now an orphanage in San Juan de la Maguana in Monte Cristi, because there was a passion laid in my heart. All I'm asking you is, what is that passion? I didn't know how to build an orphanage. I didn't even know how to organize it. I didn't know anything in Dominican. I didn't speak Spanish. Y you know that, I think. <laughs> you know, como esta usted. It's my best I can do. <laughs> como esta usted, if you know, you know, spell it out, huh? <laughs> you Spanish speakers. <laughs> but what's the passion in your heart? You can't just sit here an entire life and not have a passion. And not do something about it. Come on. Let today be the start of it. You know, as we leave this place, and we all leave, let's, I just want to pray for you. I just want to pray, oh Lord, my Heavenly Father, you put that passion in each of our souls. Don't let it go out. My God, wreck our heart with the very things that wreck your heart. Lord God, if it, if it even destroys us for a period of time, let it destroy us for a, a period of time. That somehow it would build us back up when we start to do something about it. I pray for each person here. That Lord God, they would have the passion of Moses. And they would hear your call and do something. I pray that they would have the bravery of David. And just accept in faith. That, that, that childish, that young faith. And they would just use whatever they've got to go and beat down those giants so they could do great things for you in the kingdom of God. I pray, my Lord God, that they would love you and see you as the holy, glorious God. And anything that defames you on this earth would really, really bother them to the point that they would do something about it. And for those of us who are already passionate and are, we, just, we just sweat passion, my Lord, my Lord God, line our passion up with your hearts. So this church it may be said, is a church that's on fire like the burning bush, fueled by your spirit, attacking the indignities and the injustices of this world and getting something done. In Jesus' name I pray. God bless you all. Amen. Happy Father's Day. <laughs>